Thank you, Francis. 10, 10, and 10. Uh, the first of our 1010, we looked at 1010. I have come that you might have life in all its fullness. What was that? What is that? And the invitation to that. I suppose today we're looking at the invitation being there, but how do we, how do we get the invitation not only into our hands, but how do we open the invitation? And more than that, how do we respond to the invitation and live the fullness or start living the fullness of this 1010? It's discipleship, really, which is a word that in some ways is a very strong word, but yet maybe has become more of a manual to live by rather than a way that we live by. Sometimes I'm concerned that discipleship is a clean clinical manual, maybe one that makes us respectable elders material and fits snugly into our middle-class lives. We get our discipleship manual, or today, of course, it would be a discipleship DVD or interactive for a computer or an app that we download or something. It's very systematic and we go through it and we find out things about Jesus and about what Jesus wrote for our lives. But it can get a little clean and clinical. I've told you before, but many of you weren't there when I did and um, who am I to think you might remember, those of you who were, about living in Adelaide House. When Dara Volge was just finished, there was the last, I think it was the last bomb actually before the ceasefire was from St. Bride's. It was a mortar from St. Bride's over Deravolgi Halls into an army base that was beside us for a long time. But it didn't go off and blew up in the road and took the roof off our bungalow that we were to move into, or I was to move into um, as a bachelor at that time. But uh, uh, Janice rang me in Cork to tell me it was on the news that our house had been, my house had been bombed. And we didn't get moving in. So they put me in Adelaide House, which is not Adelaide House up here. Uh, Adelaide House, which is um, down in the middle of town on Adelaide Street. And it was an interesting place to live. We didn't have a television because, or I didn't have a television because I bought the television and brought it up. But as I was taking part of it up to the flat, by the time I came back down to the car, they'd stolen the television out of the... It was that kind of place to live. Um... One morning I went down to our security, you know, real good security parking down in below the flats and discovered uh, all my cassettes had been taken and the window was smashed. It wasn't that secure. It was an interesting place to live. And because we didn't have a TV, um, we could look out the window. In fact, if Janice came, um, I wouldn't hear the bell, so she would ring me sometimes from across the street to tell me that she was there. And it was a dodgy place to make phone calls because we would spend the rest of the night looking at the dodgy people making phone calls and there was pickups happening and all kinds of stuff was going on in Adelaide House. So one morning I was um, coming out of the building to walk towards Church House and um, much more clean and clinical kind of place to go of the day. And uh, I remember walking over the prostitutes that had gathered on the step after a night's work, I guess. And as I opened the door, they, I wasn't wearing this. It's communion, obviously. It's the only reason I'm wearing this. But, uh, uh, so they wouldn't have known I was clergy or anything. But even they didn't. As I opened the door, they kind of looked sideways, both ways, to allow me to come out over them and walk towards church house. There was no eye contact. There was no good morning or anything like that. And I suppose as I was walking towards church house into the office that was 
there until I get moved up to Deravolgi, I thought, well, that's a good, clean, respectable discipleship of Presbyterian boys. We're not going to engage with the prostitutes on the step as we go out in the morning. But before I'd got to church house, I had smashed that clean and clinical system of discipleship. And in my head I thought, Jesus spoke to prostitutes. And yet today, as I walked out of my front door, I was unable to. I was ill-equipped to. It wasn't something I could have done even if they had given me eye contact. Which then led me into thinking, well, what have all those discipleship courses been about? Or what have all those conferences been about? Because in the gospel, Jesus spends his time with prostitutes. But I'd never been told how to speak to one. And you can see where I'm starting to ask, what is the discipleship that we're handed in this clean and clinical discipleship? And where is the messiness of a following Jesus as we find him in the scriptures? Into a messy, risky, and dangerous kind of life. As Francis was reading, as soon as they are declaring him as Messiah, he's almost warning them about where they're going. Deny yourself, take up your cross. What does that mean in the lives of the disciples then? Well, it's going to mean something because by the end of the chapter, he's focusing his eyes on his own cross in Jerusalem. But that's what we're about here. It's going to get messy. Indeed, it's going to get messy and bloody and risky and dangerous. That's the discipleship I find. It is alive and moving. It is the constant, the constant dynamic of dilemma going on in our decision making. In every aspect of the lives that we live. Discipleship. The gospel discipleship. Now how do we get into this discipleship? Let me take a wee step back because the title of today's um, service as you can see from the front if I can find it just to be sure because it happens very early in the week and the sermon happens a lot later in the week so sometimes it can bear no resemblance but you've noticed that over eight years follow me which icon to click Tim McGowan used to come here used to head up to your We most of us know Tim McGowan Tim McGowan's about 10 or 11 years younger than me and when he was about 23 or 24 and I was about 33 or 34 we used to go out for breakfast quite a lot. He was um, near Deravolgi at the time and we would meet in the Lisburn Road and I found it quite um, uh, annoying really deep down that he was becoming a bit of a, bit of a mentor to me when he was 10 years younger than I was. He's that kind of guy, Tim McGowan. But one morning as we met for breakfast before the fry was set down in front of us, he said, so Steve, where's the mouse clicking? Which icon is the mouse clicking on in your life this morning? It was a kind of a throwaway line. It was, what's making you buzz this morning? Where is the mouse? Do you remember mice? Yeah, yeah. You, you, mice? You don't have, nobody has mice anymore, do we? Um, it's all touch screen and all that kind of stuff. We were up looking at new computers this week and even the computers that you think should need a mouse or at least something happened, you just press them and all kinds of things begin to happen. But he was asking me, where was the mouse? What icon is the mouse clicking? And I thought, isn't that a great image? And, and when we come to faith, when we come to this life in all its fullness that Jesus offers, when we come to this connection with the divine that Jesus has come to bring, that Luke chapter 9 tells us about in this 
Who do you say that I am? And he comes to say, I am the Messiah. I am the one who is the most important world leader that there's ever been. I am the one that can change your life and change other lives. How do we connect with this Jesus, with this Messiah, with this Christ of God that Peter has declared? How do we do that? Which icon do we have to press on? Which app do we have to press on to open that world of living in connection with God? And it seems to me that the very obvious answer to that is the word grace, which I preach about, as you're aware, an awful lot. Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace through faith, not by works so that we can boast. So the following, it's not about how well we follow that opens the computer screen of faith. That's not the icon we press on, but when we press on the icon of grace through faith, when we press on that, there it comes up. But actually, as I see it, the grace and the follow me are almost on the same icon. You don't press grace and follow me comes up. There's something about the two of them at once, because the way that the disciples come into this understanding of grace in a real not a theological form but in an experiential form is when they start following Jesus doesn't say to them understand grace he says follow me he doesn't say now I want to give you a a little passage that Paul's not going to write actually for another 60 or 70 years uh, but it's going to explain to you that it's not by works it's by he says follow me Follow me as we look at the Gospels seems to be the way in. It's not a hand up at a rally. It's not a prayer we pray after somebody else. It's not an ABC of confessing our sin and believing something. And it's the, way, the words Jesus uses to get people into it are these words, follow me. And once we press on this icon, which I, I've said it before, it's like the, the tumble turn in a swimming pool where an Olympic swimmer is coming to the end and he needs to touch or she needs to touch the end of the pool to keep all legalism right but as as if you watch them and I don't watch the swimming that much but if you watch the underwater of that you can see them touch the wall and come back off the wall in one movement they don't touch the wall get out of the pool and start again they're not two movements there's the touching of the wall and the movement towards the next thing And it seems to me that to connect into this life in all its fullness, to connect into this world of God, this world of the divine, that follow me and grace are the one movement. We receive the the grace by the following. The following is only possible by the grace. Now that intrigued me this week because what I was aware of um, and hadn't really followed up and now would love every week you kind of are preparing a sermon you're thinking I wish I could take three years and do a PhD on that particular line it happens all the time and, but you have to move on to next week's sermon you don't even get a chance to read another book on it never mind do a PhD on it but the idea of what rabbis were like in the first century because there were lots of rabbis and there was lots of disciples of rabbis so what were the other rabbis and disciples about and what was the difference of any between Jesus and his disciples and the other rabbis well as I read about this one of the things and it's not completely 100% or anything but it seems to me that a lot of the times people would have come to a rabbi and said look I'd really like to follow you could I become one of your disciples And the rabbi might have made a decision as, oh, there might be some hope there, or actually, 
nah, we're full up this year, you're going to have to reapply next year, or can we send you back out to work in the world for a couple of years before you can go back in and do it? With Jesus, what's interesting in the end of chapter 9, of course, reminds us of this. After what Francis read to us today, people did come up to Jesus and say, can I follow you? And every time somebody came to Jesus and said, can I follow you? Most of the times Jesus says, no, nah, actually, you haven't looked at the cost. The way you want to bury people and you want to... You've, he, he, puts, he puts things in the way. With the disciples, he put nothing in the way. He's walking by the side of the lake. Would you follow me? He sees the tax collector. At this. Here, come and follow me. It would seem to me, it would seem to me, that Jesus' invite to follow is a grace-dominated invite to follow. The two are the same click. Jesus comes and says, follow me. And that invitation comes by God moving towards us first. Remember the start of the service? Isaiah's in the temple. Isaiah's a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. His eyes have seen the Lord. He realizes the holiness of God that he has ruined. And God moves. God moves towards him. A grace act of God moving. Isaiah didn't go away and say, goodness me, got to get this together and that together and that together and then maybe next week I could come in the presence of a holy God. He realized that was a useless idea. God had to move. And in grace, God moves towards Isaiah first and invites Isaiah into this double movement because almost as soon as he's got the grace delivered as soon as he's atoned for and the guilt's taken away who will I send here am I send me there is an acceptance of grace and a following of Jesus in the same action and of course when we click that icon repent and believe you must be born again love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength love your enemy give away all that you own feed the poor all of these come up as soon as we click the right icon as soon as we click that follow me grace icon then suddenly all this other stuff comes up that tells us about the life of the kingdom that we're going to be thinking about over these next months but it's this double reflex and the way I thought about it this week was in this phrase when, when we come to this table a little bit later on and we remember the Lord's death and we remember the, 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 the veil in the temple torn in two so that we, by his grace, could once again come into the Holy of Holies. Hebrews chapter 4, I've been reading this week in my pastoral visits and we, we've been looking at how in Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 4, because Jesus has come to earth and can sympathize with our weaknesses, we can with boldness and confidence come into the holy place. The temple is torn and ripped in two so that we can come into the presence of God. As we come into the presence of God by grace, that changes our positional holiness. In that moment when Jesus cried, it is finished, when the temple was torn in two, suddenly we're in a situation where there's no more between us and God. It's gone. That barrier is gone. Jesus has taken the barrier away. Positionally, we now become friends of God. Positionally, we now become justified if we want to use the theological term. But I think in the same instance as that happens, positionally, we shift to following God. So we come to positionally be friends of God. We come positionally to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus, as Paul puts it in Romans. But in the same instance, we become followers and suddenly our positions in the world shift. 
We're no longer where we want to be ourselves, in the safe places or the respectable places or the places that will best serve us. Suddenly, as Katie was saying, we've got a new driver. And the new driver is driving us into places that change us positionally. And I suppose at this outset, and we'll look at this over the next eight weeks of 10, 10, and 10, where are those places that we will now move to because we have pressed the follow me grace icon? Where are the places that we wouldn't have been before that God will call us into? Who are the people that we will be called to meet with or to talk to? Maybe as we step out over them on the step of our house. Who are the people that now, because of our positional holiness before God, the positional people around us will change and suddenly he will teach us or train us or should be as to how to talk to the prostitutes on our step. This double whammy. Our position before God changes and our position among human beings change. So let me finish because we want to get to this table and reflect around it. A word that I read this week in a book, I think it's Malcolm Duncan, L. Um, L. Greer and Steve that uh, were with us for a period. L. was the poet who we used to have at the front doing a few things. And I married them in Inverness and they're now living in Brighton. There's a distance to go. Um, Steve um, came on Facebook and said, Ah, you might like this book. It's about taking risks by Malcolm Duncan. I think he spoke at New Horizon a number of years ago. But he has changed discipleship to followership. And I like that phrase. What we're doing here is we're taking Jesus' welcome to us Jesus welcomed by grace into being followers. And we come into a followership to be with him. Mark 3 and 14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out. But we're with him. Followership. The Messiah, our Lord. We spend time with him so that he can tell us what to do to send him out. In fact, to follow him, as Jesus asked, Uh, Come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. We're with him. We follow him. We live by his teaching. John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples. We continue in his teaching. We live his teaching. We imitate what we've seen. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, John 13. For that is what I am. Now that I am your Lord and teacher and have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. This is followership, that we see what Jesus did and the people that Jesus did it to, and we go and do and imitate what he did. And that everything else is secondary. If, secondary. if everyone, anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person can't be disciple. Everything becomes secondary to this followership. Now, that's not a clinical, clean discipleship. That messes up your life. And I guess as I've looked at it this week, I've asked myself, what state is my life messy? And is that in some way a way that I can decide whether I'm really a follower or not? Because unless it's as messy as Jesus' life, then are we living some clean, clinical sham? Now I know what we're saying. We're all sitting here and we're going, those are high ideals, Steve. So let me finish with another story that I've told before, but do not tell enough. 
pianist was at Madison Square Gardens. One of those that I wouldn't be going to see with the tails and actually probably with maybe wearing a, a dicky bow. It's amazing what illustrations you can find in your pocket when you're least expecting them. Can you imagine me in a dicky bow? How did it end up in my pocket? Well, ask Michael and Gillian Fitch and you might find out. But there's the tails, there's the dicky bow playing all this grand music that no doubt Richard would be able to play along with and Chris would play along with and uh, our classical part of our community would really love. Takes a break, 15 minute intermission. Wee boy who's about three, you can imagine anyone you want, you can take your pick on those ones that were at the front earlier on. One of these gets himself somehow onto the stage, up on that stool, and starts to bang away on this piano the way he was watching the pianist bang away. And he's making a thoroughly mad noise. And all the conversation in the auditorium that was there during the interval stops. And suddenly everybody's looking at the wee guy ruining the keys on the grand piano on the stage. And the parents, let's hope they're not out at the toilet or off for a drink. They might be making their way down the steps to get on the stage to get him out of there. When suddenly the wee guy is aware of a shadow cast over him. And he looks up and it's the pianist back at his piano that he's heard being destroyed. And the wee guy at that stage is probably saying, you know what, my mum or dad might have been better than this. But he hears the pianist saying to him, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. Now if you're three or four and the piano man tells you to keep playing, you're going to bang away as hard as you can. And while he bangs away as hard as he can as a three-year-old boy with no genius, we're told in the story, the master pianist starts to weave a tune out over his shoulders. And suddenly everybody gets a breathe in in the auditorium. And the second half starts with a three-year-old just banging away at the keys with the master saying, keep playing, keep playing. If you follow this story, In Luke 9, when Jesus was told by Peter that he was the Messiah, and Jesus said to Peter, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, it was still a mess. Peter was still banging spiritually away. But Jesus just kept saying to him, keep playing. You're going to cut people's ears off. You're going to deny me in front of a cockcrow, and you're not going to believe that I'm raised to life, but just keep playing. And if you keep playing, my invitation of grace and to follow me, If you keep playing and I'm in the driving seat or I'm the pianist or I'm the Lord. If I'm the Lord then that will change everything that we do. Let's pray. Lord this declaration in Luke chapter 9 that you're the Messiah. May we never become too familiar. And may we never be too familiar with the challenge after it to take up our cross, deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow you. May we not limit or confine discipleship or followership 
to a discipleship manual that we can put in our pocket and bring out and read a verse or two here and there. But may we be aware that as this table that we gather around in a moment changes our position before you, that it will also change the positions that you send us to in the week that's ahead into the people you'll send us to, the places you'll send us to, the dynamics of dilemma you'll send us to, because as Lord, when you are Lord, that changes everything about us and everything that we do. We pray it may be so, Lord. We pray it may be so. In Jesus' name, amen.